If you don't have your Bibles just yet open, open it again to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, earlier I read the entire first chapter of 1 Peter chapter 1 to you. It's church, we can be honest. Did you understand all of it? It's hard, wasn't it? It was dense and long and there were some amazingly lofty phrases it said in there, for instance, that What Peter is discussing is something that angels long to look into. Let me tell you about that. For the next nine weeks, and then we'll take a break and we'll return for another nine weeks, we will journey through the letter of 1 Peter together. And in case the reading you felt like was beyond you, went right over your head, had language that you didn't possibly understand, let me encourage you. We're reading an ancient letter written some 2,000 years ago, probably in the 60s AD, just a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus, by someone who knew him personally. And let me encourage you, as we go through this together, to regularly be reading this letter. And if reading is difficult for you, because a lot of us have learning challenges or reading, reading differences, don't let that trouble you in the slightest. Take the version app, put the app store to good use for once, okay? Not Wordle, not Snapchat, not Facebook, not Snapgram, whatever it is, okay? <laughs> Twitter face or whatever, whatever apps you're into now. Set those aside, get a Bible version, uh, an app called version, Y-O-U version. It will give you the Bible in hundreds of languages, dozens of translations of the English Bible alone, most of them with audio. And if reading is difficult for you, by all means, listen to the Word of God. If your mind drifts, if your mind hits a hard spot because you don't understand what was said, back it up and listen to it again. You're in amazingly good company. This ancient letter written some nearly 2,000 years ago now was written not by a scholar, it was written by a commercial fisherman. And there's no condescension there. Peter was actually a a middle-class man. He wasn't poor, but he wasn't educated either. He was not an influencer. He was not a scholar. He was not anyone that was guiding anyone in Israel until he met Jesus. If Peter were alive in our day, we we might refer to him as people did actually in his day. Those of us who live on the coast, I don't do this because I was actually born in the middle of the country and raised in the, in the northern part of Mexico, but people who are on the coast and proud of it, places like Orange County or Los Angeles or Boston and New York, talk about the center of the country. They have a little insulting little phrase. Have you heard it? They call it flyover country. Well, thank God for flyover country. Flyover country is giving a lot of strength and actually a lot of food to the rest of America. In Peter's world, he wasn't in the middle of the country, but he was in a spot where people asked the sort of thing, really, from there, it's kind of a little backwater town, but Peter met Jesus and spent time with him. Peter was personally chosen by Jesus, probably a rabbinical school dropout or never was student. Peter spent about two years of his life in close companionship with Jesus and after the resurrection of Jesus wrote this letter. 
There are some people who love the Bible so much and they're so stuck in their own ways and they prefer so much their own methods that they say that listening to the Bible doesn't count, that you only can read it. Don't ever be discouraged by that. As a reminder, the people who heard the first letter of Peter actually heard it. The vast majority of people in the ancient world could not themselves read. The only encounters they had with the Word of God was when someone had a copy of some portion of Scripture or when they attended the synagogue and someone stood and read it to them. This would be particularly true if, like many in, the wor- in that ancient world, they were Gentiles and Gentile slaves. So all of those, all those terms that puzzled you, all those things where you said, I'm not sure what that means, if your mind shut off during the reading and rejoined me four or five verses later, don't feel the slightest bit guilty about that. Understand that this letter was actually written not first to you, it was written, however, for you. I said earlier I was raised in northern Mexico. I was raised in, the, uh, in a city with an unlikely name, Chihuahua, Mexico. Nobody's entirely sure what that name means. Some people think it means in an indigenous language, dusty place. And if that's what it means, they're dead on. It is a very dusty place. It's the high desert of Mexico. And I grew up a long time ago before the internet brought everything close. And in the center of that town was a old historic post office with a colonial architecture left there by the imprint of the Spaniards. And there, because mail was so unreliable in Mexico, my father had a P.O. box. I'm sure he still does. Post office box 1002 in Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico. Zip code 31,000. We'll probably still get a letter to my dad if you want to write him. (laughs) Don't, though. It might take weeks or months. My dad recently received a letter that had been mailed years earlier. And because the internet and because Amazon had not brought everything close yet, that little tiny post office box and my dad's occasional trips to downtown to check the mail, he'd say, let's go get the mail, buddy, and off we went. And it took an hour, but for a little boy it was very exciting because every once in a while with what mail arrived, I would always ask, anything for me? And the answer was almost always, no. You're eight years old. Why would anybody send you anything? But every once in a while, a church in Lubbock, Texas, would rally a Sunday school class, and they would get a list of all the missionary kids that are growing up around the world that their church supports, and they would actually send me something. And my father would say, buddy, something came in the mail for you, and that was a good mail day. This is a good mail day. We're going to read a letter that was not originally written to us. We're not the original audience. That's why the language, the concepts are difficult. Peter is a believing Jew. Peter is a a Jewish believer who came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And what part of what he's going to do, and part of your difficulty maybe in understanding what I read to you, is that Peter is gathering up a great deal, which I'll show you in a moment from the Old Testament. Peter is still in the process, along with men like Paul, he's still in the process of writing the New Testament. The Bible that you hold in your hands is not yet complete. God is still giving words to his apostles and his prophets. 
for now, for Peter, when we talk about the Bible or the Scriptures, it only means at this point the Old Testament and a few of the letters of Paul. So, of course, there's going to be things as you read it that aren't immediately apparent to you because you weren't the original audience and you don't have Peter's background. But as you journey together, as we journey together, and I try to explain it to you on Sundays, and you read and listen it, listen to it during the week, let me invite you to reach out to your Heavenly Father as you read it. Hold on to the parts that you do understand. For instance, it says you do not see Him, but you love Him. You can see yourself in that verse and say, Jesus, I've never seen you, but I do love you. Here it speaks of your suffering and your blood. I know enough to know that, that means that you died for me. Thank you. Ask your heavenly Father who wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave this word of God to us. Ask your Father what it means. Ask Him to help you understand it. Ask you to help Him believe, help you believe it. Ask Him most of all to help you put it into practice. And I promise you, if you keep reading and you keep listening, you'll be different two months from now because the good mail that Peter wrote to you will take root in your heart and mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, here's your good mail day. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is one of those words that wasn't translated for whatever reason. They just brought it straight over from Greek, the Greek word apostello. You don't mean to make a note of that unless it's, you're the kind of person who likes to know that sort of thing. You do need to know what it means. Apostle just means one who is sent. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Mark writing his gospel in dependence on Peter, using Peter almost certainly as the eyewitness of the things that, Peter is, that Mark is writing down and explaining. Mark 3.14 says that Jesus went among those who were following him, and he chose 12. And he said he appointed them as apostles, and he appointed them for two different reasons. It says to be with him and to send them out to preach. The transformative effect on Peter's life, and it will be the same on yours, was Peter was with Jesus. Later, Peter is on trial with John, and the religious men, the learned men, the scholarly men, the ones who look down on flyover country in his world, say, aren't these just dumb fishermen? How did, he, how did Peter ever learn to speak like this? Here, he's telling you, he is one who has been sent of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. You see, for all of its distance and its foreignness, ancient letters are very much like today's emails. They will tell you who sent it and who it's sent to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then a bunch of words we don't understand. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What's happening here? Well, those strange names, all you need to know is those are in modern-day Turkey. That is a part of the Roman Empire known in those days as Asia Minor. And Peter, who has been sent out to talk about Jesus, are writing to people who have been scattered. That's what dispersion means. And scholars are still trying to figure out, I followed kind of the trace, uh, the, the line of scholarship, 
They used to believe, and I used to teach, that the people who were receiving this were Jews who had been scattered by persecution. More recently, in reading the letter more carefully and digging into the history that surrounds this letter, because we're not reading fiction, we're reading history, it seems to me that Peter is writing to Gentiles. Later in this chapter, you may have noticed, he says that they've been rescued from the useless ways that were handed to them, down to them by their ancestors. It seems unlikely that Peter, who had grown up an observant Jew, would refer to the Jewish faith in that way. Probably what's happened is the gospel of Jesus has gone everywhere. And both Gentiles and Jews have believed it. And what is certainly true about these people is they have been scattered in some sense, and they're scattered all across the Roman Empire. But the first verse isn't the important part. The meat of what Peter has to tell them is in verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, what's the word there? Elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Did you get lost in that dense sentence? A little bit? I did because there's some strange things in there. It speaks of people being elect. That is what you most need to know about this letter. That word sets the tone for everything that follows. As I'm going to show you, and as you keep reading and keep listening, you're going to find out that the people that are reading or hearing this letter for the first time are on the anvil. They have been scattered. They do not feel at home in the world. Many of them likely have been displaced. They've lost jobs. They've lost friendships. They've lost family members as the faith of Jesus has split their family down the middle. The very first thing that Peter wants to tell them is that they are elect. In the first service, and it made all of us a little bit nervous as I tried to explain that, someone from the back shouted a different word. He shouted the word chosen, because apparently that's what his Bible translation said, and that's exactly right. That's a good translation, and what it means is this. You have been, we have been known forever by the Father. Look in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now bear with me. When we start talking about the eternality of God and the things that God knows, a lot of Christians check out. And that's understandable. Anytime you're talking about another person, you can understand a lot of things, but there's also a limit to your capacity of understanding another person. You can know a lot about them, you can love them, you can trust them, you can have them right in front of you, but through a certain point you can no longer understand what is being said about them, what they're saying to you, you don't understand them. Have you ever come to the point where you love somebody, but you don't really understand them? Anybody here married? Anybody here have kids? Any kids here have parents? Anybody have friends or bosses or coworkers or anybody, anybody in the world that you try to understand, you're going to hit quickly a limit. 
Peter says to these ordinary, mostly illiterate people, the first thing I want you to know is that I have been sent to you by Jesus Christ, and I am writing to people who have been chosen, who have been elected by God, and the first phrase he uses to explain what it means to be chosen, to be elect, is that you have been known forever by the Father. And that's a mind-blowing, mind-stopping concept because you and I exist in time. We can look back in the pictures. We can look back at old memories on Facebook. We can dig through the archives of our family history and our family memories and be reminded of a time long ago, but we're all confined by time. Peter says that all of this happened by the foreknowledge of the Father. In other words, long before they were alive, they were known by God. Later in the chapter, you may remember me reading it to you, it says that the death of Jesus was set aside was planned before the foundation of the world. This is very important to know that you have been loved by God and known by God forever. This gives all God all the glory and it gives you all the good. If you have a relationship with God, Peter is telling you, it is entirely by God's initiative. There's another phrase there. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, that might be even harder. Foreknowledge, knowing things in advance, taking the initiative, I think I can understand that. If God exists out of time, if God is simply the one who is there, who makes all things, who knows all things, who is worthy of the name God, I can understand maybe God looking all across history and knowing and loving and caring about me and setting his own purposes and his own action in motion so that he could meet my need. That is mind-blowing, but I think I understand it. But sanctified in the sanctification of the Spirit, what does that mean? That means that you've not only been known forever by God, it also means that you've been set aside by the Spirit. You may have noticed we're talking again without naming it of the Trinity. This fundamental biblical and Christian truth that God eternally exists and three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what Peter is showing you here by naming first the Father and then the Spirit and twice in two verses the name of Jesus Christ is that all of God in three persons has done something for you to choose you, to elect you, to bring you into God's grace. Sanctification is a good Bible word. It's the same word that is related to the word holy. If you've been going to church for a while, if you grew up in church long ago, you might have gone to church or you might have even have gone to mass and sung this old hymn, which we should sing again soon. It says, holy, 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 and then Lord God Almighty. What does it mean? The word holy means that it's set apart, that it's literally a cut above. What Peter is telling you, what the whole Bible is telling you when it speaks of God's holiness is that God is not you on steroids. He's not what you could become if you just got smarter and had enough time. That's a lot of normal Christian, uh, normal American spiritual thinking. 
Hinduism in its greeting says to one another's people who are practicing Hinduism, bow to the divine within the other person. God, all across his word, says, no, I'm the creator, you're the creation. We are not alike. Any resemblance we bear, it's because I made you in my image. But I'm holy, holy, holy. I'm three times. I am perfectly separate from you. I am set aside from you. And this verse says that we, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, says that God in Christ has come close, what we celebrated at Christmas, and that the Spirit has set you aside. The Spirit has made you holy. In other words, in simple terms, God in His eternal love for you has set the mark of His Spirit on you to say, He, she belongs to me. Peter's not unpacking all of that here, but Paul later, uh, Paul rather, in another of his epistles, in the book of Ephesians, in the first and the fourth chapter, speaks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit as a down payment for all of the riches that God is going to give us. Here's a simple illustration that might help you get your arms around it, because I'm telling you something that is high and holy, and it's all good because it's all for you. It's by God's love for you. That's how you've been elected. That's how you've been loved. I noticed, and I'm not really trying to participate, because at my age, you really should stop trying to follow trends. You should try to have some dignity and know your lane, stay in your age, not embarrass yourself by trying to be one of the kids anymore. But I noticed a few, years, uh, a few years ago from the young people who attend this church and the young people who work at this church that I was still toting around a plastic water bottle and all the young folks in their teens and 20s weren't carrying little disposable plastic water bottles anymore. They had these really cool powder-coated awesome little jugs. And a lot of money is being made with those, and a lot of cool is behind every one of those brands. In fact, I saw an ad yesterday or the day before that invited me to buy about a $60, what it called a rehydration cylinder. Okay? Only marketers could come up with rehydration cylinder instead of water bottle. You know, if they just try to sell you a water bottle, that's probably worth about 10 bucks. but if it's a rehydration cylinder, well... Now it's tactical, now it's technical, now we're getting somewhere. I must have a rehydration cylinder. <laughs> and the point of this story is I've noticed that the people who own these for the most part, especially young people, they're not content just to have the bottle. They cover it with something. They're covered with what? Have you seen this? Stickers. stickers. Now it's very important the placement of the stickers. Because you want to make sure, if you got the coolest brand, you want to make sure that the brand, which is painted on there, still shows through. You wouldn't want to cover that and let them think that you went with the Walmart brand because you can't afford the rehydration cylinder. <laughs> but while still claiming the coolness of the brand, you can put stickers all over it. And it's kind of become a hobby of mine if I'm in a meeting with someone who has their bottle on the table. I'll just take time over the course of the hour that we're together. If I have a chance to get up, I won't grab it because it's their rehydration cylinder. But I like to look and see what they're into because the point of those stickers is you kind of tell a story of who you are, where you've been, what you belong to, what you're interested in. 
So we'll see other brands, and we'll see destinations, and we'll see national parks. We might see military units or sports teams or fraternities or sororities, whatever you belong to, in an internally important, earth-shattering, mind-blowing way. The foreknowledge of the Father for suffering Christians who have been scattered in their suffering for Jesus because God knew their need of salvation and forgiveness in advance, and because God above all knew the suffering that they would face in this world, sent the Holy Spirit. And when it says sanctification of the Spirit, what that means is God through His Spirit putting His name, His mark, His seal on one of His children, on each of His children saying, she belongs to me. She's mine now. All that I have is hers. The Holy Spirit is both a seal and a guarantee and a down payment for all I am going to continue to give her. And that is one of the hardest things in all of Scripture to believe. Because God has chosen by His grace, according to the Bible, to put your sins as far from Himself as East is from the West. He has chosen to put them behind him in the depths of the sea. He has chosen to remember what you have done no more, but you can remember. And your shame and your guilt speak to you and remind you, and you ask yourself sometimes at your worst moments, do I really belong to God? Could someone, God really love a person like me? If I really am forgiven, why do I keep doing these things? And why do these things keep coming up? In all of those things, the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit all mean that you belong to God. And that's not all. There's a third phrase, and by far the hardest. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, that makes sense. You've not only been set aside by the Spirit and put on a path of growth and godliness to become like the Father who saved you, this says that you've been saved to obey Jesus. You've been saved, you've been known, and you've been sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then it says, and for sprinkling with his blood. And modern day readers say, wait a second, not comfortable. Sprinkling with his blood? What in the world? I mean, we've spent two years trying to avoid spittle. We're trying to avoid fumes and vapors and other people's breath at this point. We've been set aside, it says here, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What in the world could that possibly mean? And here's where you see Peter's Jewishness. Here's where you see Peter's knowledge of the scriptures that already existed of the Old Testament. There are two places in particular. It's actually a long line of red all the way through the Old Testament, but there's two places in particular I think of when I read the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. It's a word picture. Let me explain it to you. In Exodus 24, God has set aside the people of Israel for himself and given them his word. He has given them his law and his covenant. He has made a promise to them. 
that he will be God and Father to them, and they are to respond to him with worship, with reverence, with obedience, and relate to him as the God and Father he is. Moses in Exodus 24 is in front of the people, and it says that Moses painstakingly builds an altar. Moses builds it. Twelve columns on the altar, one to represent each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he does something strange and to our modern ears and eyes horrifying. He takes the blood of a sacrificed animal and he throws half of it on the altar. And guess what he does with the other half? Can you guess? He throws it on the people. And what does that mean? It's a picture of how deep this bond is. That this is not written in ink. This is certainly not written in pencil to be easily brushed aside. God is making a promise to them at the cost of blood. Later, as the law continues to be unfolded in the book of Leviticus, I read in Leviticus 16 painstaking details for the famous tabernacle of Israel and for the building of what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. And there I read that one man and one man alone can enter into the most holy place inside that place. Only one man and only one day a year. Only the high priest among all the priests. And he and he alone can go into the inner sanctum of the tabernacle and only one day a year on what is known as the Day of Atonement. You can read it later for yourself. The details are exquisite and to a certain point excruciating. Every step as that man goes, there is blood. There is blood for his sins and there is blood for the sins of the people. And he is welcome and allowed in that place only once a year. And he's the only one who can go there. And at every step as he approaches the presence of God, where God has chosen to make his presence known to his people, he takes blood and puts blood ahead of himself. Why? See, this is why people like Oprah because she just says nice things. She just tells you you're awesome and to keep doing better in your awesomeness. Why is the severity of God so emphasized in the Bible? Why is His holiness lifted up as so above our own? Why is there so much blood? Because as you read the Old Testament, it is one long string of sacrifices all the way through. Why? Because... The good news of the gospel is that this holy God, so separate, so far above us, can only be approached on his own terms. And the terms of fellowship with God because of the sin that lies between us is blood. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of his own son. Years ago in Mexico, I'll never forget this, it's been over 20 years, but it broke my heart and shocked me that day. And this week as I studied and read this passage, I was reminded of it. We had a service very much like this one, except I was preaching in Spanish. And a young woman came forward and spoke to one of our associate pastors and said, I, I understood the message, I understand that I've sinned and I've done wrong in the sight of God, I've hurt others, I've even disappointed myself. I want to talk to somebody about how I can have God's forgiveness. Perfect. That's the whole point. That's what we're working on. That's what we've been praying for all week. Come over here. We'll talk privately. 
And I noticed her leaving in kind of haste. You can kind of tell sometimes when people are upset. She left that office quickly. And I stepped forward and asked the associate pastor, that seemed like it was going well. Where's she going? Why? I was hoping to meet her. Here's what she told him after he explained that only the death of Jesus could forgive her sins. She said this, I'll come to God on my terms or not at all. And it broke my heart. And it's been over 20 years, and I wonder what happened to her because here's the point of the blood. Here's the point of the sacrifices. Here's the picture of the Old Testament priesthood where one mortal man is chosen, one a generation until death to represent all the others, taking blood that was not his own as a reminder of what it would cost to have peace with the holy, eternal God that we've so offended with our rebelliousness. It takes blood. And the picture of, that Peter is painting here is that the great high priest will come and his name will be Jesus. And God will not build an altar. God will actually grow a tree. And wicked, sinful men, not knowing what they are doing, will fell that tree and fashion it into the shape of a Roman cross. And the Son of God, who made all things and sustains all things by the word of his power, he will die shedding actual human blood because he entered into our experience, took on all of our sins and traded our sins for his righteousness. That's why it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that we have been sanctified, we have been elected by the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. It's His blood that speaks for you. It's His life, death, and resurrection that makes you elect. It has nothing to do with you. These three heavy phrases laden with biblical knowledge from generations earlier all speak to one thing, that you are loved in this way, not in your own merits, not because you'll do better, not because you ever could, but because God loves people in this way. And the attitude adjustment that Peter would have for us here is this. We fear when suffering as these people were. Here's how we often think. If we suffer, we must not be loved. Have you ever had a crushing disappointment and wondered where God was? Had you ever wondered if there was perhaps not some neglect, some lack of love on God's part? Some terrible thing in your own life that put your own specific situation beyond the love and the forgiveness of God. And that's why this had happened. Here's the attitude adjustment. Here's what Peter will tell us at the length of this letter. Elect does not mean exempt. Elect by God does not mean exempt from suffering. Yes, we have been chosen. Yes, we have been loved. However, we are not exempt from suffering. Jesus himself was not. Read 1 Peter 2, verse 21 with me, please. It's right on the outline. It's also on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. There were some slow adopters there. Can we read that again together, please? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You've been called, you've been elected, you've been chosen, but will not exempt you from suffering. No, Jesus himself also suffered. Having no sins of his own, deserving no suffering of his own, he suffered for you, and his point of suffering for you is to leave you in this present world an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And all of this goodness is given, it's not earned. The doctrine of election is often used by Christians to puff them up with pride. It's exactly the wrong effect. All of this is grace, the foreknowledge of God, the setting aside by the Holy Spirit, Jesus covering your sin with his blood. That's all of God's goodness, and all of it is a gift to you. It is not earned by you, and it's the hardest thing in the world for people to believe. Because everything in this life is earned. I saw a military ad the other day where they showed the famous insignia of a particular branch of the military and the tagline was, this is earned, not given. You see somebody wearing this, they earned it. We don't give this thing away. And the appeal there to the youth of America is, maybe you can be good enough to earn it. That appeals to human achievement. That appeals to human ingenuity. That appeals to human drive. And none of that will do you any good when it comes to dealing with a holy God who sees all of sin, only his love, only his grace, only his knowledge, only the seal of the Spirit and the blood of his Son could possibly save you. But you may have noticed Peter says that these people are not only elect, they're also exiles and exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? That's a little phrase that captures their suffering. The fullness of Roman persecution has not come upon them yet. That will come decades later. But local persecution, family persecution, broken friendships, lost jobs, lost income, lost prestige, the contempt of a society that turns in its paganism to hate and pour contempt out on the minority, all of those things have made these people feel scattered, feel not at home, feel displaced, and at least some cases they have lost their homes and their place. And here's what Peter would tell you. You may lose things by following Jesus, but here is not our home. You're exiles. We're exiles. We're on our way by the knowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit and through the blood of Jesus to a better place. In John chapter 14, shortly before being arrested and murdered on the cross, Jesus explained his absence to his disciples. He said, I am not abandoning you. I am going ahead of you so that where I am, you may be also Christian. This is not your home. You're only a temporary resident. And a lot of the disturbance and the lack of peace and the anger and the division that has come in Christian churches and in Christian families is in these times of suffering, of pandemic, of political division, of the overreach of authority where people are suffering so much, we are striving hard, some of us, to make this world more comfortable to ourselves. And we may or may not succeed, but one thing for certain, this is not our home We try to remodel this world in vain. We have 
a better father, a better land, a better house waiting for us that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare for us. And the result of all this, Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What you get when you realize who you are, what you've been given, you get more grace, you get more peace. And Christian, that means that we are chosen by God eternally to live for Him here temporarily. You have been loved forever. You have been known forever. Jesus decided long before you were born to die for you. The Holy Spirit would come and give you the new life of Christ. You've been chosen by God eternally. The purpose of it is that you will live for Him well here, only temporarily. Church, let's follow Jesus well, whatever it costs us. Let's pray.